This week we are continuing our sermon series through the letters of Peter. We will take a little pause for the month of December uh, for Christmas. We're actually planning on a little series on Psalms that reflect truths regarding the incarnation and the coming of Christ. And so we're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to it because I don't have to preach all of them, but uh, um, Chad uh, Burrow's going to help, and then uh, Robert Knuth will be preaching one as well, and I'll pick up the other two. But we're looking forward to that. Uh, just a little break from Peter, going back into the Old Testament, looking at the Psalms. And this morning, though, we are continuing through Peter and Peter's letter to believers who were facing the possibility of persecution in an increasingly hostile and difficult culture and society. And we find ourselves now in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. And again, this is one of those texts that as you get into it, there is just so much there that the Lord is showing us regarding who we are as God's people that it can be overwhelming. But it is also a great blessing. And so let us now hear God's voice. As we read in First Peter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do now come before you and beseech you once again that you would open our minds and hearts to hear your voice and in hearing that we would see Christ Jesus, our Lord. We ask that your spirit would attend the proclamation of your word, for without it, it is not. But when you do attend it with your spirit, it works in our hearts to strengthen our faith and to draw us closer to Christ. And so we ask that you would work now in Jesus' name. Amen. This world... It has done and it continues to do so many things to try to escape from the presence of God. We know this. People deny him with their minds. They ignore him with the actions of their lives. They replace him with other objects and persons or ideas of devotion. 
And yet with all of that effort uh, of trying to erase him from the world, they reveal the very fact that they are cursed because of their sinfulness. For the ultimate expression of God's curse upon sinful humanity is the absence of the presence of God. If we go all the way back to the fall, we see that. For Adam and his wife Eve, they they once enjoyed the presence of God regularly in the garden of his provision. But upon transgressing God's commandment, taking of that forbidden fruit, breaking his law, we find that immediately when they do that, they now fear the presence of God and they try to hide from him. And then when God's judgment does come for their sinful rebellion. They are cast forth from the garden, banished from the place where they once enjoyed God's presence. And from that time forth, all humanity in their natural state, apart from Christ, suffers from the withdrawal of God's presence. Indeed, it's one of the most horrifying aspects of the curse of sin that fell upon this world. And it is this forsakenness that leads to so much of the pain and the hurt and the confusion and the suffering and the tragedy and violence, sorrow and misery that characterizes the human experience. You see, we were created to know God and in knowing Him to enjoy Him and His blessings forever and worship Him forever. But in our rebellion, we have chosen to ultimately worship ourselves over our Creator and to our joy ourselves without the acknowledgement of His presence in our lives. And so God has given all humanity over to those unclean passions of their hearts, as Paul explains it in Romans 1. And that emptiness, that forsakenness is the very core of all other problems. And it's one we cannot solve. After all, the world is cursed with this absence of God's presence. And the best a blind person can do in the dark is to stumble about groping for something to hold on to, to somehow escape the night and find the light they need. Well, thanks be to God, He has not left us without hope. He has not utterly abandoned us. And we have been seeing these past few weeks in First Peter that we indeed as his people have a living hope which rests upon our living Savior. And our text this morning takes us further up and further into that hope. Here Peter wants us to know what it is to be united to Christ. And that when we are united to him, we are not forsaken by God because we are the very temple in which his presence abides. You see, as a believer, you are part of a new temple. That's the first thing we see here as we read in verses four through five. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up 
as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Peter uses this metaphor of a stone first to describe Christ and then those who follow him in faith, who come to him. The, the stone here that he is speaking of isn't just some random rock pulled from a field. It is a shaped stone, a part of a building material likely hewn from a rock wall intended for the construction of buildings. And so as you, meaning believers, come to him by faith, Christ is your foundation and you are being built on him by God into what Peter calls a spiritual house. Looking at Christ here, he says that Jesus is this living stone, rejected and yet chosen. By saying he's living, he's reminding us that we have a risen Savior. As Christians, we are not followers of dead and cold stone images. The living, breathing Son of God. Peter is citing specifically from Psalm 118.22, when he refers to Christ as the stone that was rejected by men, but chosen by God. And he's done this before, actually. If we go back to Acts chapter 4, we find a sermon of his uh, where he is speaking to the Sanhedrin, to the very people who crucified Christ, including Caiaphas the high priest. And in great boldness, which we know characterizes Peter, he courageously proclaims to that very same Sanhedrin who put Jesus to death these words. He said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. By putting Jesus to death, those religious and civil leaders of Israel were rejecting him. And yet God had the final word by raising him from the grave to become now the cornerstone of this spiritual house that he is building Jesus himself spoke of this very same thing when he gave the parable of the wicked servants who stole their master's vineyard. And so the master sends his son to collect what is rightfully his and they kill the son. And Jesus cites this very same psalm. And the point of this is to show That through the rejection of Christ, he is still the chosen of God. And that rejection worked into God's plan. Indeed, it had been planned from before the world was created. The point of it all is to show God's absolute power and sovereignty in saving his people through Christ, the Son. And we need God to have that kind of authority. Because we live in a world where sin and evil seem to march in this unchecked, purposeless, dark parade. And yet God is behind all of that, working through the darkness, working through all the sin and the suffering to accomplish his planned and purposed end to save us from it all. 
The very rejection of Christ is a testimony to that. As He is the rejected living stone, but He is now used by God as that chosen and precious cornerstone to build this spiritual house. The slaying of the Son of God, which is, in a sense, the rejection of God's presence, became the very instrument of restoring access to His presence forever by ending the forsakenness brought on by sin. For it is believers, those who come to Christ, as Peter says it here, that are built into the spiritual house God is constructing. And a spiritual house, of course, speaks of a temple. That's what is in mind here. And what is a temple but a place where heaven and earth are to meet, a place where God meets with his people, a place where his presence abides. Let's take a little journey through the Bible and and consider the significance of a temple for a moment. So first we go all the way back to the very beginning of time, to the very creation of the world by God. And what we see there in that opening chapter of Genesis is there is an emptiness, a void, there is a chaos, a a forsakenness pictured in the great darkness over which hovers the Spirit of God. And then as the Scriptures record, God creates the world in seven great creative acts through speeches, bringing order to the emptiness and shape to the shapelessness, purpose to the world. We read then that on the seventh day, God rests, His presence filling all creation. He is ruling over it as the Almighty King over all He has made. Creation is pictured as a temple, a place where God's presence dwells and rules. A temple, though, is also a place of worship, a place of communion where God meets with his people. And so the first temple of creation needs some priests. And into that, God places Adam and Eve. He charges Adam with the task of keeping the Garden of Eden. And that very same word In Hebrew, that is translated to keep the garden as God commands him to do that. It is the same word God gives to command the Levitical priesthood to keep the temple in Jerusalem. As we move forward into history, if we find that God has now called forth Israel to be his people, he frees them from bondage of slavery in Egypt, and they are now wandering the wilderness And he instructs them to build a portable temple called the tabernacle. And in those instructions to build the tabernacle that God gives, he explains it or lays it out through seven speeches. Yeah, seven. It corresponds with the seven days of creation. And we see that same pattern of seven speeches from God giving instructions to Solomon to build his temple. Also in those speeches, we find many instructions on how to decorate the interior of the tabernacle or the temple and the pillars that support it. And we read of things like 
pomegranates and lilies and wreaths and palm trees, as well as animals like lions and oxen that are adorning this beautiful space where God's presence was to meet with his people. And what do you think of when you hear of lush vegetation like palms and pomegranates? A garden. A garden. Thus, it's meant to point back to the Garden of Eden, which itself is a representation of all creation. You read of these menorah that are placed in the temple to light the temple. And they are shaped like a tree representing the tree of life which existed in Eden. And again, the whole purpose of this physical temple was to show that God's presence was with His people. But what happened? Well, going back to that first temple, what happened to the garden? Did the first priesthood consisting of Adam and Eve continue in the task they were assigned? No, we know the story. They did not. Instead, listening to the temptation of Satan, they want to become like gods themselves by taking that which was forbidden. And the result, as we've already seen, was expulsion from the garden, expulsion from the presence of God. There's a sense of forsakenness that came from their sin. And the same thing happens to the temple in Jerusalem. Their history is one where the people continually rebel against God and worship every other false idol other than the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. And as a result of their sin, after many years of God's long-suffering mercy, His judgment finally comes upon them and they are led into exile first into Assyria, then Babylon, and the temple is destroyed. And so yet again, the shame of the absence of God falls upon the people, but he has not utterly forsaken them. He is always true to his word and he had made promises that He would have a people for his name and he would dwell with them forever. There needed to be a new and better temple. And so through the prophets, a day is foretold when there would be a new and better temple, a temple made without human hands, a temple that would last forever, a temple whose builder and maker would be God. And so into the world comes Jesus, the living stone. And what is he called? Emmanuel, which means God with us. God present once again in the earth, dwelling with his people. Jesus was the true temple of God, the God-man, 100% God, 100% human in one person. And yet we already know what happened to Jesus when he came. He was rejected. He was rejected. He was cast aside, put to death on a wooden cross. The people again reject God's presence. And yet it was that very rejection that was intended for redemption. So as Jesus hung there on that cross, bearing the sins of those whom he would save, 
dying in their place, suffering the judgment they deserve. What does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then what happens? Well, he raises from the grave. He comes again on the third day out of the tomb. He became the chosen cornerstone of a new temple, a spiritual house upon which all those who come to him are being built. And that brings us then to our text here in First Peter, where he speaks of that other temple. Jesus, the rejected stone, is the foundation. All who come to him are built into this new temple, meaning that God dwells with his people now. He brought order out of the chaos of sin. He created his spiritual house to live with his people now and forever. Not only are those who come to Christ part of the temple, but they are also priests, Peter says, offering up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ Jesus. Those sacrifices are are our very lives, transformed by the Spirit of God, by the means of the gospel, lived in thanksgiving and praise to God for who he is and what he has done. And he ties then this whole amazing drama of the temple together by citing from no less than three Old Testament passages in verses 6 through 8. As he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Notice all the the intentional contrasts there. Honor and shame. A cornerstone for some, yet a stone of stumbling for others. Belief and rejection. When that first sin occurred, the immediate effect of it was shame upon Adam and Eve. They tried to hide themselves. They covered themselves with fig leaves, trying to to hide the shame they were experiencing. And when they, they hear God moving through the garden, they try to hide from him instead of enjoy his presence. And all through the scriptures, we find shame is associated with sin. In fact, when the temple is destroyed and desecrated, it's considered to be a mark of shame upon God's people because God's presence was now no longer with them. And to this day, the absence of God's presence is is a shameful thing brought on by sin. But Peter says that you who come to Christ, the living stone, you have no shame. The shame has been removed because your sin has been forgiven. And so now those who come to Christ, instead of being shamed, are honored. They are lifted up and esteemed. They are precious to God. Peter's first audience was being shamed by their culture and society for their faith. 
and how they needed then to hear yet again this gospel honor that belonged to them by the grace of God. Just as Christ, their chief cornerstone, was rejected and despised, so are those who come to him rejected and despised by others, by their society. But there is no shame in being shunned by an unbelieving world. There is only honor in the sight of God. And yet, as Peter says, those who continue in unbelief, that very same stone that is the foundation of this new spiritual temple becomes the very object by which others trip and fall into the judgment of God. You see, Jesus is not a person you can ignore. You might think that you can, but you cannot. You have to reckon with him. Either you come to him in faith, like Peter describes here, and you are honored by God as he builds you into his new spiritual house forever, and you enjoy his presence forever. Or you stumble over Jesus in unbelief, and he becomes the very thing that crushes you in the holy judgment of God for your sin. People cannot go through life and try to walk around the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot step over Him. You can only rest upon Him in faith to your salvation. Or you can trip over Him in unbelief to your condemnation. As Peter said, some are destined to do. We need to look at that little phrase for a moment here because you say, well, pastor, how do I know I'm just not destined for faith? Maybe I'm destined for unbelief. That is a hard thing that Peter says here. If my salvation rests upon the sovereign grace of God, how then do I know that I'm not one of those who was destined to stumble over Christ? That's well, a good question to ask, but the very fact that you ask that question tells me that you are not stumbling over Christ. You're being drawn to Him, to know Him, to believe Him, because you are actually concerned. You are concerned of the consequences of stumbling over Him and falling. You don't want that to be your fate. Rather, you want to be honored in Him. You see, those who reject him entirely, they do so to stumble and fall away for all eternity. They will never repent, never come to Christ. They continue to reject them their entire lives. But if you have come to him, if you have faith already, no matter how small or weak it may be, to you it is granted not the shame of stumbling, but the honor of your faith, the honor of being built as a living stone into the spiritual temple to enjoy God's presence forever. The honor of being part of a new people, which is the second thing we see here. You are, if you have come to Christ, not just a new temple, but a new people. Peter puts it this way. You are a chosen race 
You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. This is an unfolding an explanation of what the honor looks like that is yours if you have believed Christ. This is your honor. This language all comes, of course, again from the Old Testament, particularly Exodus 19, Isaiah 43, and Hosea 2. It is highly covenantal language used to describe the character and identity of God's people as a result of their relationship with him. It is a list of benefits or the blessings that are yours for being part of God's people. This is the honor of God's grace poured out to those who have come to Christ. So let's look at this as we close. First, he says, You are a chosen race. Race or people speaks of those who are united by common origin because they are descended from a common lineage. That origin is the sovereign grace of God. He chose you to be part of his people. You hold that in common no matter who you are, what your age is, what your gender is. You are part of his people only by his grace, his sovereign grace in choosing you. And this is a very radical claim that Peter is making here. Originally, this term chosen race was spoken to the ethnic people of Israel. But that has broadened as God revealed more and more of the gospel through his word. And he shows that the grace of God is not limited to the people of Israel. Now it overflows to people from all nations. And what unites us then is not natural blood heritage and culture, but the grace of God. Secondly, he says, you are a royal priesthood. We've seen that language already, being a priesthood. And it is important here to distinguish between the individual and the collective. We often focus as Protestant evangelicals on the priesthood of every individual believer, which is a beautiful truth. And certainly we, we, we cherish that truth as that we can come to God simply through Christ without any human mediator. But again, the emphasis of Scripture here is not on the individual. He doesn't say you are priests, royal priests. He says you are a royal priesthood. It's on the whole community of God's people. And it is royal because he has saved them from the dominion of sin and brought them under the rule of heaven's high king. And the role of priesthood here is ambassadorial. You, if you are in Christ, are a representative of the honor that is yours through the gospel. You represent King Jesus to the world. The church's mission is to show the world the glory and the blessing of Christ's kingdom and what that looks like. 
We do that through our worship. We do that through our lives when we offer up as these spiritual sacrifices. And this, as Peter will show later in his letter, is especially important when you are in a culture and a society that is turning against the church, turning against God's people. So rather than lashing back in anger and hatred and malice, we show the courageous love of Christ in the face of suffering through those who would seek to even harm us. We are royal priests, a royal priesthood. Third, he says, a, a holy nation. Nation is much like, like the word race or people, but the idea here is people who are united around a common culture. Every nation of this world we know has a distinct culture. There are even cultures within cultures. There are traditions and idioms of language, common behaviors, art, music, interest, ideas, and goals. The way we celebrate things from birthdays to holidays can be very different. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that what unites us is not all those differences of that beautiful diversity of culture that exists in the world, but our holiness, our consecration, our dedication to God. We are dedicated to Him. We are His holy nation. And so that means you can go to a church in Africa or South America or Eastern Europe and you you can worship God, and that worship will look aesthetically very different, sometimes dramatically different. But you know you are still in the gathered church, the holy nation of God's people, because it is not those human cultural elements that unite us, but that spiritual cultural element. We are a holy nation purified by our obedience to the truth of the gospel and we see it being manifested before us as we proclaim God's excellencies to the world. Next, Peter says, those who believed are honored because they are a people of God's own possession. And this speaks of a common person or purpose. So we saw as a chosen race, you have a common lineage, a common heritage. As a holy nation, you have a common culture. As God's own possession, you have a common purpose. This is the end goal of the gospel. The central promise of God's covenant of grace has always been, I will be a God to you and you will be my people. And the goal is, as Peter expresses it, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Being called out of darkness calls to mind the, the historical exodus where God led his people out of Egypt. And as a believer, your honor is that you have been led out from the darkness of your sin, that shame, that absence of God's presence into the light of his presence forever. And our purpose then is to proclaim that, to proclaim the glory of the gospel, to proclaim the excellency of our God. Once you did not have mercy, but now you have mercy. Once you were not 
his people, but now you are his own treasured possession. And so then, as sojourners who have this living hope, we continue to proclaim the excellencies of God to a world in need of mercy, even when that world turns in hostility against us. To put it another way, God has honored you with his presence so that you might make so that you might honor him in the world. God has honored you with his presence. He's made you a temple. He abides with you as his people so that you might honor him in the world. You see that the temple that he's building. It's not complete yet. It's an ongoing project. Stones are still being cut and added to the structure built upon Christ, the immovable foundation. And God continues the construction of this great cathedral of his people through his people who worship and serve him as royal, a royal priesthood, offering up their spiritual sacrifices of holy lives and worship, proclaiming his excellent mercy to the world. And so though it might feel like it at times, the reality is we are not forsaken by God. The church is not abandoned. God is still present with us and he will always be with us. And so let us declare that. Let us make his presence known. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this great truth that you have made us to be your temple, that you abide with us even here and now in this place as we worship you. Father, we ask that you would help us then to reflect your glory, your excellency to this world, that they would see that in seeing it, you would, through your spirit, remove the scales from the eyes of others, that they might not stumble over Christ, but that they might embrace him in faith and be built with us into this great temple to enjoy your presence forever. We thank you that you have honored us, though we deserve no honor. You have honored us with your presence, so let us honor you through our praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.